Hello, welcome to the Growing Design Podcast, where we help you grow your design agency. If you want to learn how to price your services, how to sell your expertise, and how to attract the right type of clients, you've come to the right place. I'm your host, Ed Orozco. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Growing Design. Today, we're going to be talking with Danielle Photo. Danielle, can you please introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me on. So my name is Danielle Photo. I'm the Director of Marketing at Manobyte, which is a digital and technological solutions agency for building materials manufacturers. Awesome. Um, the reason I wanted to speak with Danielle today is because she is an expert in SEO and marketing, and she comes from an industry that's not 100% related with design. So I always like for the audience to learn as much as possible from other industries and find the similarities um, and sort of like expand their circle of competence in that way. So I'm very excited to have you here today. Um, and I know that you just started at Manabide as the director of marketing. Can you tell us a little bit about what's that, um, what, what's your role like and, um, what's the main challenge that you're, that you're facing? Sure. So in my role at Manobite and, you know, before Manobite and other fun things that I get to do, really, I help creative agencies and marketing agencies and digital service agencies in general, I help them grow and I help them serve their clients better. So that's a lot of what I'm doing with Manabyte as well, helping them grow, helping them serve their customers better, get their message really refined and pointing towards what the user intent is so that we can get more people uh, to them to have their problems solved by their solutions. Awesome. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about um, the user's intent yeah. Um, but let's start first by discussing a little bit of what's the importance of SEO um, in, a, in our marketing strategy for a company. Absolutely. SEO is super important. It's changed a lot over the years, especially since 2018 as well as when there's that huge pivot towards the algorithm that Google uses, primarily being a semantic search algorithm. And to boil that down, you know, instead of looking at primarily the factors going into it, they're boiling that down to, is the user being engaged? Is their main intent question being answered? Are they finding what they're looking for? Now, all of the same factors that we were looking at before 2018 are involved in those three main buckets, but the way that information is, you know, ranked accordingly has changed. And as SEOs, y'all know as well that it's hard to know exactly how much different ranking factors are attributed to that ranking position. But in general, if you can answer those three buckets, if you can focus your SEO strategy on those three things, you're going to be much more successful in your SEO strategy. Does Great. That help? So, um, so it's all about engagement and it's all mm -hmm. about uh, that's how they measure the quality of our result. Uh, is that correct? 
That's how I see it for sure. When you're looking at your data, you can tell that the pages where you have people clicking on the internal links that you have, clicking on buttons, clicking on different modules, when there's that lower bounce rate because they're looking at things, when there's that higher time on page, when they're submitting forms on pages, all of those engagement metrics, you can also correlate that to ranking positions most of the time. You can see that the breadth of keywords that you're ranking for, as well as the depth of keywords that you're ranking for, is usually much higher on those kinds of pages, assuming that the topic is one that your users are looking for and that you have that quality content on there. That's very interesting. So there is data to support a correlation between uh, engagement in a website and the ranking of that website in results for a specific term. There is. It's been really interesting to see. And um, Moz.com and um, Search Engine Roundtable sources have several case studies that you can look at. Um, and they've got all of the data. They've got their methodology behind it as well. And what's so interesting about it is a lot of it's people doing the same thing that they were doing before. Now people are just realizing, okay, if we really hone in on these things, we can continue improving. We can get that exponential website traffic curve that we're hoping to get when we're improving our ranking positions and we can continue growing from there. That's very cool. Um, so there, that's something to keep in mind for all of the UX designers and strategists that are uh, trying to improve the engagement, whether that's a website or a web application. Google takes into consideration all of those micro interactions um, in the way it ranks the website. So for your clients, of course, it's a good thing to rank higher. So when you're crafting these digital experiences, keep in mind that engagement equals uh, higher ranking in the in the page rank results. Um, now, I know that there's a couple of terms that I think are very interesting and I would like to understand them a little bit better. There's the technical SEO and there's the non-technical SEO. Can you explain a little bit about the difference and how they play a role in the, uh, uh, an SEO strategy? Absolutely. So web designers, UX designers, a lot of times you're going to be mostly dealing with the technical SEO side of things. And oftentimes on your team or maybe you're outsourcing the content writing, they're going to be focusing a lot on that non-technical SEO bucket where the technical SEO side of things is, okay, how do we set up the actual page scripting and coding elements like your JavaScript and how fast it's pulling in the CSS and in what order, how do we set that up so that the page loads quickly? How do we properly resize our imagery? How do we add that alt text on our imagery so that it's contributing to the SEO value of the page? How do we structure the page with the information that people are looking for first at the top, but keep them engaged to get them additional answers at the bottom? How do we add in proper buttons and links to other pages to move them down the path of their buyer's journey? Those are technical SEO elements that are related to the specific ranking uh, factors that Google is using to define the three buckets of priority. 
the non-technical pieces is that content and the content strategy that goes behind it is super important. So you want to make sure that you have someone on your team that's really dedicated and focused on defining that buyer's journey, seeing what intent questions they're asking along the different stages of, okay, when they're in the awareness stage of their buyer's journey, what kinds of questions are they asking? How can we answer that on this page? When they're in the consideration stage, what questions are they asking? What is their intent? Are they looking for pricing? Are they looking for information on mistakes to avoid? Are they looking on information for how long it takes to do something like this? What kind of questions and information are they looking for so that they can compare your solution to other people's solution? And then when they're in that decision-making stage, what kinds of questions are they asking? Are they asking about, okay, are these the perfect people to help me? What, what is the team like? What are their qualifications? What awards have they won? Um, other things like that too. So your content strategy and answering those questions is going to be the main focus of that non-technical SEO aspect. Gotcha. So um, there's a term in user experience design uh, called, well, actually, this is a term that I think exceeds the expertise of UX experience and pertains to the web, which is information mm -hmm. architecture, mm -hmm. which basically is how you prioritize pieces of content in your in your website to maximize the usefulness of that software product for the user. Um, would that be technical or non-technical? I would ascribe that kind of as a gray area. Here's why. If you're looking at it from the architecture building side of it, so the bones laying the foundation for what that's going to look like, I would say that's more in the technical SEO bucket because you want to make sure that you're enabling the structure to help it, the page rank better in Google from a user intent and answering their questions perspective in how they can navigate and find the information. Now, then you have the non-technical SEO side of it where you're adding that value in the actual content that's answering the question. So where you're placing the answer is the technical, where you're like how you're answering it with your content, that's more than non-technical. Does that help, Ed? Yeah, that's that's actually very interesting. I didn't know there was um so many intricacies to what an uh, an information architect does. Um yeah. It's it's actually you know a lot more complex than just deciding the priority of of uh, of the content. You actually have to know exactly what your what is it that every content is going to communicate. Where do mm -hmm. you put it? How do you put it? How long it is, and all of those factors. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned something that um, you also mentioned this during the uh, during the introduction, which is uh, the user intent, or the I think it's also called buyer's intent or searcher intent. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's about? Yeah, so I would say user intent kind of branches out into searcher intent and buyer intent because sometimes you're just looking for an answer to a question, so that's more the searcher intent. Sometimes you're looking to actually make that purchase. There's your buyer intent. So if you want to lump that into one category, you've got all of these users, their user intent. It's going to be different in your industry. It's going to be different for the campaign that you're working on and the structure that you're putting uh, to surround that campaign, but. When you're looking at user intent, it's all about answering the questions and engaging them with valuable information so that they're going to be able to move to that next step in their searcher's journey or their buyer's journey, which overall is just the user's journey. Is there a way for us to determine in which stage of the 
let's call it the, the buyer decision cycle. I don't know if that's the right term. Is, is there a way for us to determine through research or other methodologies in which stage of the buyer's cycle uh, a particular user is? There are some guidelines, I would say. Um, there's going to be some situations where it's subject to opinion and either answer, like, are they in awareness or consideration? Are they still in consideration? Are they ready to make a decision? There's going to be a little bit of overlap, but there are some guidelines. So when I'm looking at content, when I'm looking at the user experience, when I'm looking at how to improve something or add to it, I'm going to ask these questions. So if someone's in the awareness stage, I want to think about them where they're in a position that they're part of the demographic, the target audience that we're trying to provide that value for, but they may or may not know that they have a problem that they need our solution for yet. So they're part of our target, but they don't necessarily know they need us yet. When you move them into the consideration stage and are writing content around that and enhancing their user experience to you know, move them towards the decision-making stage, you're trying to answer questions and provide value such that they can compare their options, whether that be multiple options in the same industry, say you and two other competitors, or whether that be even looking at different kinds of solutions. So for example, okay, I could do nothing. That's always an option. I could do what I'm doing right now. I could hire this kind of solution or I could hire this other kind of solution. Um, let's, let's do a real life example. So for example, um, say you're looking to move your elderly mom into a retirement community or get her help in some way because she needs someone around. So when you're in that kind of a life situation, you're looking at different options. Do I hire an in-home caregiver? Do I become her in-home caregiver and give up my job and spend time away from my family? Do I look at retirement community options? Do I do nothing and just leave it as the status quo? I mean, those are your options. And that's more in the consideration stage as well. So you want to be answering those questions on other things that they could be doing. So if your client is a retirement community, obviously they want people moving into their facility but their potential buyers are looking at options that don't even involve moving into a retirement community and they're still asking those questions. So if you're wanting to really drive traffic and leads, you need to consider the other options that users are looking at too. And then when you move to the buying and actual decision-making stage, you're answering questions that solidify their confidence that you are the right solution for them. So you're explaining your process. You're telling them what to expect when they're working with you. You're telling them about the people that they'll be involved with on their project with you, anything like that to build that confidence, just nail it into their brain that you are the right solution. They're making the right choice and they can move forward with confidence. Right. So you sort of know, depending on what the what the search was, right? So you can probably shape your content strategy in a way where you um, give an answer to questions they may have earlier in the cycle, mm -hmm. and ideally, you sh you should be optimizing sort of like your your more sales funnel, the entrance to your sales funnel. You should be optimizing that for the results in which they're going to be using terms that are closer to making a decision. Absolutely. So when you're doing, you know, keyword research and looking at what search intent is, oftentimes you can tell what their intent is by the ways that they phrase their questions. 
So when they're looking more in, let's work backwards on this one. When they're looking to buy something, they're going to use phrases like, where can I get? Or something, whatever the product or service is near me. Or, you know, um, is this place open? Or something like that. Because they have the intent, they want to go there, they want to buy something. If you're looking more in the consideration stage, they're asking questions to inform their decision. So how much does it cost for? How much does it cost to do? Um, where can I find? What is the best option for? And you're filling in the blank after all of these. Um, and, you know, other questions like that so that they can evaluate their options. Um, best kinds of blank near me. You know, that would also be one that fits more in the consideration stage because they're looking at other options too. When you're moving backwards into the awareness type of user intent, they're just thinking, okay, I, I'm just living my life right now. I'm not really knowing that I need your solution. So you're looking at questions that are most and topics mostly related to interests that they have things that they're looking for in their day-to-day. So a lot of times, these don't even necessarily relate to the direct service or product that you're providing to them. You're just trying to really know who is my target buyer and what kinds of things do they deal with on a daily basis that I can actually provide them information for even even if I don't provide a direct solution or product to that problem. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. It's very, very helpful. Um, I... I don't know, added a note here for the questions because I thought they were very interesting. Another typical question that I sometimes uh, as a as a searcher will make if I'm trying to figure out which way to go is like, should I do this or mm-hmm. this other completely different thing? Or I would do, you know, situation A versus situation B and try to mm-hmm. find those sort of like parallel articles that will like highlight pros, pros and cons of every um, option. Obviously, some of those are written by people who provide solution A, and they are very interested in you buying it. But I guess also they're more interested in buying it if you really want to buy it. I I think like an ethical way of doing um, content strategy is also helping people to make their decision, even if that decision is not buying your product, right? Absolutely. And on that same, on that same thread, you know, a lot of times people are looking in that consideration stage. So the majority of content on websites when you're designing that architecture is probably going to be pointing them towards that consideration information so that they can make the best decision possible for them. Okay. So that's something that's definitely uh, important to keep in mind when you're defining the structure. It's not just about prioritizing information. It's also about determining the type of questions that you want to answer for your users. Um, Absolutely. There's also the concept of ne- um, local SEO, which is how do we attract people? If we're a local business and we're geographically specialized in serving a market that's within a few kilometers or a few miles uh from from where we operate how do you go about sort of like shining or cutting through the noise if you have a, a low if you have if you're a local business and and you're mm-hmm. trying to attract traffic from you know nearby absolutely i think the biggest way well i think there's multiple big ways that businesses can do this one of those ways is 
show your expertise in your area, show that you're involved in the community and that you know what's going on around you because you live there, you're part of the community, you you are the one who knows everything about whatever city that you're serving or the surrounding areas. Another way that you can do that is tell people where, where you serve. Um, so add that global module on your main pages of we are proud to serve people in these cities. We're we're looking to help you in these areas, but we've refined it down because either one, you know, we have to drive to you to serve you or you have to drive to us to buy something from us, that kind of a thing. In the digital landscape that everyone's operating in, it's really easy to get yourself into a mindset where you're like, well, I could serve someone in this city or this state or this country. Like it is within the realm of possibility, but is it practical? Is that actually going to be how you can grow your business and really drill down into a target audience that you truly can service and service them well? So I know, Ed, this is one of your soapboxes of making sure that People know who their target audience is and they are specific in that, that they're not trying to serve everybody with what they offer. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, absolutely. So I always recommend for smaller to medium-sized companies and agencies to be very specific about their target. And one of the, it's true what you were saying that if you're offering digital services or if you're offering consulting services and you, the way you um, execute those services is online, you could be tempted to just sell to everyone. And that might be an option if you're highly specialized in other variables. But uh, geogra uh, or geography or like proximity can be a variable that you can also consider because maybe you're not hyper-focused on the specific thing that you offer or the specific problem that you solve but you're the only one that's offering it in, you know, German language or in this particular city or in this particular country. And then you can leverage actually, or the, yeah, you can leverage the power of networks because when you start working with a few people in, uh, in, in close proximity to each other, chances are they know other people in the industry and in, in whatever sort of uh vertical they operate in so they'll be able to recommend you and they'll you're going to be able to you know do sort of like networking events and then you're you'll start to be known in that particular uh geographic area so it's something to consider it's not the only variable you should still try to be to specialize in other sort of like variables like um product offering or industry or other stuff and definitely that's why i wanted to talk about um geographically because that's another very important variable that you you could um harness is not only for barber shops and, and and hair salons you can also do it uh if you're you know providing ux services maybe you just want to do i provide ux services for um ngos in new york or something like that. i don't know um depending on on what what you want to specialize on so this actually brings us to relationship marketing. Um, I know that you are a firm believer in networking and getting to know uh, or expanding your network by by networking and by talking to people and, and collaborating with people in different projects. Uh, what's your take on relationship marketing and sort of like growing along your client as your client expands their market and becomes a bigger company? you can also keep cultivating that that relationship. Absolutely. 
So a lot of things can scale, but really good relationships are harder to scale. You only have so much time in the day. You only have so much emotional energy to pour into people. You only have so much time to help people when they're in need. So while you can scale a product launch, while you can scale your, you know, your ad strategy and the content that you're producing and the promotion strategy, you have to scale your relationship marketing by enabling other people to also do that relationship marketing. So having a good company culture where you're enabling people to to value those relationships, to value going out and just talking with people and being friends with them and saying, hey, I, you know, yes, I sell this. Yes, I think you could benefit from it, but I am not interested in just having a transactional relationship with you. I want to have a relationship with you because you're a human being and I value you. So when you're doing relationship marketing, try to keep it from being transactional. Try to see, you know, how are you doing today? How are your kids? How's your dog? How was that skiing trip that you just went on? You know, what's bothering you right now? Like, What's keeping you up at night? And it may have absolutely nothing to do with anything that you can help them with, but you can build those relationships and you might be able to point them to someone who can help with that. And then, you know, you're building a reputation as a connector and someone who can actually enable solutions for people beyond yourself. Right. If you, if you do that, and on top of that, you have a very clear message about what you do, you're going to make it even easier for people to recommend you because you don't yes. really know where your next uh, lead might come from. Mm-hmm. Um, when, but if you keep if you keep thinking in terms of like tra- like transactions, like you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. that's gonna scare people away because they're gonna know that you're always trying to sell them on something. But yes. if you try to be helpful and cultivate those relationships um, and provide value, um, they're gonna recommend you because they they're gonna start liking you and they're gonna start trusting you. Yes. Um, Okay, so you talked about like scaling. There's only so many hours in a day. So, you know, you have to be very mindful of where you spend them uh, when you're cultivating your relationships in your network. Um, Can we talk a little bit about um, that progression when your clients or your early clients, when you just start your agency or working as a solo consultant, you start seeing that your your clients have success and they start growing. How is that sort of like projection or uh, when you start working together with them and supporting them in every new project that they have? Mm-hmm. Those are super pivotal moments for an agency, for sure. When you get a client coming back to you every three months for a new project or they're you know on retainer with you every month because they just value your expertise and they might be like, okay, uh, I don't know if we're doing anything yet, but I'm pretty sure we will. So let me just keep you on retainer so that we can send stuff over to you and get your help. Um, when you establish those kinds of relationships, continue pouring into them as people and not just valuing that transaction so that they are happy. And oftentimes the people that that are coming back to you for things, they have so many problems that they're they're dealing with that you're not the number one thing that they're thinking about all the time, even if you're thinking about them all the time. So doing a little bit of a, a check on yourself and your timelines on getting content back from them and reaching out to them for answers and information, just having that understanding that while we're spending our time as agencies focusing on them, focusing on helping their businesses grow, getting them the systems and information they need in place for all of their operations, that's our focus 
they hired us because of that. And it's probably not their, their top focus. And they think about it for maybe one to three hours a week. So being mindful of that, I think is super, super critical. Then when you are being proactive, when you're engaging with them and knowing what they need before they ask for it, they're going to have a moment where they say, wow, how did I do this before working with X agency? I don't know how I got this stuff done. Like they think of everything before, before I do. And that's when they have the moment and they start telling people about you and inviting people to use your services as well. Cause there's a risk there. If they're telling someone to go use your services, they're risking their relational credibility with that person as well. So you need to get them to a point where it's not a risky thing for them to say, Oh my gosh, you need to go talk to so-and-so because they, they can totally fix that problem for you. Yeah. You have to make sure that the first time a client refers you to someone else, you knock it out of the park. I mean, mm -hmm. you should be knocking it out of the park every single time with your work, but be very, very um, mindful of that relationship because they're putting their reputation in the line by recommending you. Absolutely. They gave you a gift. I mean, when someone gives you a gift, you don't just like, okay, cool. And then like move on with life and throw it on the shelf. You thank them for it. You acknowledge that it's a gift and you value it in a different way. It could be if you get a gift and it's the ugliest sweater you've ever seen, I bet 90% of you keep it in your closet for five years, even if you never wear it because it was a gift and you value that and you respect the person who gave it to you. You should apply that into all of your relational referrals that you're getting into your business as well. Yeah. And I don't think they're going to give you an ugly sweater. Probably it's just going to be business. Um, it might be a bad client though. Um, that's a different story. And that and, does happen. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then what do you do in those, in those cases? Yeah. Well, those are tough because again, they risk their relationship to refer someone to you who that person who was referred to you is trusting that things are going to go well. So a lot of times communication levels have to be above and beyond anything that you might get from someone who just found you organically or from social media or um, that, that just found you from other means, other marketing strategies, because they're expecting something. They've been told stories. They've seen the results that their friend or acquaintance or colleague has gotten And they're expecting something similar, if not even better. So going that extra mile to communicate expectations again in your language, in your terms, and in a way that they understand to make sure that the conversations that they had with their friend, acquaintance, colleague didn't set you up for failure too, because what they see is a totally different interpretation of the same reality that that you see. So making sure that everyone's on the same page to ensure that relationship is solid and secure and expectations are aligned all across the board is what I would do. Ed, what would you recommend? Yeah, so something that I recommend that uh, every agency and consultant and everyone to do is to have criteria, a very firm criteria for vetting whether or not a, a client is the right fit for working with you. Mm -hmm. um, and in that list of, of, of factors, you should have, okay, the, the technical part, can we do this? Do we have the technology or the know-how to solve this problem confidently and with high quality standards? But there's another part that I think a lot of people just ignore because they don't give it as much import, uh, as much of us, uh, of, uh, of weight in their decision, which is the soft factors. Is this person 
really hard to work with. Is this person going to be bossing me around? Is this person going to be disrespecting my um, sort of my my process? Uh, those things you should plan your marketing and sales funnel in a way in which you can detect those things early on. And then be be very firm and, and just say no. Just say, I'm sorry, I don't think we're going to be the right fit for working with you. And then you can be honest and, and say, you know, we feel like there's not enough. I mean, it takes a lot of tact. It takes a lot of um, sort of command of the relationship to say no, because I don't feel like you're respecting my process. And that our process is the only way we can guarantee results or we can mm -hmm. guarantee the quality of our work. But you could also, if you don't want to go there, if you're shy or whatever, then you could also say, I'm too busy. I'm booked up. Even if you're not, if you're not I guarantee you that that's going to be the best for all three parties involved. It's going to be great for your initial client because you still went and talked to the, to the person they, um, that, that they referred your business to. It's going to be great for the person that received the referral or the person that you're rejecting sort of because you're not making them waste time and you're saving them from a potential bad experience working with you. And you're saving, yep. your, saving yourself a lot of headaches because that was not going to be a good client. It's going to be a problematic client that's going to add a lot of stress to you and your team. And it's going to take up your time when you could be actually working with other companies that are a better fit for your business. Yes. No is such a magical word. I mean, it's two letters and it can both create a lot of problems, but it can solve a lot of problems to your point, Ed. If you know your boundaries and someone's outside of those boundaries of what you can actually you know, supply for, for a good user experience and customer experience, then saying no is the best thing that you can do. Maybe you have a list of other service providers that do something similar that you can just hand them and say, look through these options. That way you're not leaving them stranded without something to do and, and having that kind of moment of peril, like, okay, what am I going to do? I thought you were going to fix my problems. Um, so maybe have something like that on hand. And if you're getting a lot of unqualified people from your customers, maybe you need to talk with your current clients and customers about what you actually do and what you don't do, because there's obviously misalignment there too. And if you're getting bad referrals, then something's wrong with that system. And that's a marketing system. So if something was wrong with your, you know, the ads that you're running, you would go in and fix it. So now you need to apply that same approach to the referral system that you're building as well. Yeah, you made me think of a conversation I had on the podcast with Crystal Nicosi. She was saying, if you keep getting uh, bad fits, you need to fix your marketing because you're mm -hmm. attracting the wrong type of client. Uh, it's not their fault, it's your fault. So you have yeah. to go back and look at how you're promoting yourself, what's your message, and tweak it so that you can get better clients. Instead of just accepting to work with bad clients, uh, try to fix your marketing so you start attracting the right ones. Absolutely. Um, talking about bad clients, um, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about scope creep, which yes. I think is a, is a subject that's very... Um, uh, a lot of agencies are familiar with it. Oh, yes. A lot of agencies don't know how to, how to deal with it. And um, I'm of the thinking that scope creep happens because expectations are not clear. The, cl the client is obviously expecting something and they thought they were going to get it, 
and now they're not getting it, whatever that is. So they keep asking for more because they feel they got the shorter end of the stick in your in their relationship with you. Um, mm -hmm. What's your take on, on scope creep? Um, scope creep is one of my soapboxes for sure. So I could talk about this for hours. Um, I think the the biggest, I'll stick with two things for now. I think the biggest two things for creative agencies to remember is your time is valuable and they are coming to you because you have an expertise. I think there's a lot of imposter syndrome in our industry. And because of that imposter syndrome, we're more willing to just say yes and to bend the knee to client requests because we don't feel like we have the value that, that we should feel like we have because we do have that value and the services that we're providing. Um, so that's one thing I would say. And then another thing is a lot of times in any situation, asking a follow-up question, like you get an email from a client and they're like, can you do this by, you know, Friday? Ask a follow-up question of, well, in order for me to do this, I need to get this from you first. Send that email back. 90% of the time, they're not even going to respond. And what that tells you is a lot of the fires that they're trying to throw at you aren't actually fires that you need to be putting out. What you need to be focusing on is moving them forward in the strategic way that you've outlined in your creative service solution package, whatever that looks like. So you can do that. Another thing you can do is, well, let me get you a quote for that. Here's a couple other questions I have. And then oftentimes they'll respond like, oh, no, 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 I didn't realize that wasn't included. Um, don't don't run a quote on that. We'll figure out another way to make it happen type of a thing. And doing that early in the relationship is critical. You have got to do it from the very beginning. If you're a parent, you know that you have to set expectations and hold firm uh, with your spouse on those expectations with your kids from the moment they're born. Otherwise, things can go crazy. And you, just over time, you don't know how it starts, but you know you build up those behavior exchanges with your kids and with your clients to where then the expectations are different. And one day you're super frustrated because they don't get it. You're overworked. You're tired. You're not making enough money for how much you're doing for them. And it's just because they don't understand where the lines were. And you might have moved the line so much that your square turned into a circle and you're doing a lot of things that you weren't originally planning on doing. I love it. Um, I think we can set a little mini framework here to save you from uh, scope creep. Um, first of all, you need to filter the bad clients. If someone's pushy and abusive and doesn't respect your work, you it's never a surprise. Come on. You know it. From the first time you talk to them, you can, you can gauge the type of, of, of person they are or the type of client they're going to be. So be honest with yourself and say no. Um, that would be the, the first filter or the first stage to avoid scope creep because pushy people will always ask for more. Um, yep. the, the next stage would be set your boundaries early on. As you said, I love this. There's a chapter, um, in one of Jordan Peterson's book where he says, uh, psychologically people will, it's, it's just normal. Uh, and this happens, but psychological, we're wired to push people around until they set a boundary. So he, ha he talks about this baby that kept waking up, um, during the night. And then he kept like putting the, the baby back, uh, back to sleep. Short story, uh, short story is he's like, 
the more you let people push you around, the more they're going to push you around. And every single time, they're going to go just a little bit uh, uh, farther uh, to test when what's sort of like the inflection point. They're going to keep testing you until you push back. So know what your boundaries are and establish them. Let them be very clear at the beginning of their relationship that if they're texting you at three in the morning on a Sunday, you're not going to respond. And you're Mm going to respond the following week saying, oh, I noticed your text. I actually don't work or reply on text messages um, outside business hours. Uh, I'm happy to respond to it now. It's, you know, 9 a.m. on a Monday. Unless, you know, they're paying premium for that kind of attention, then by all means. But make it clear and be honest to yourself. And the third filter for this little framework of avoiding scope creep is walk away. Have the Mm -hmm. power to say, you know, guys, this is not really working. I've given you three sort of, not warnings, but like I've, I've notified you three times about my policies. I've shared the contract multiple times where I very clearly state that we don't do this. We don't do that. Um, I don't think we're the right partner for your business right now. So mm-hmm. I would like to just walk away, refund their money and save yourself a headache. Yes. Believe me, a lot of people will be like, oh no, refund their money. Oh my God. That's actually the best thing you can do for your agency at that point, because that client is going to be a nightmare. It's a, pro- it's a project that's never going to end. Yep. You're going to be dreading every single call that you have with them. They're yep. not going to be happy and they're not going to leave you a good review and they're not going to re- uh, refer you to other, other clients. So mm-hmm. save, like do yourself a huge favor, refund the money and walk away. That is a perfect framework, Ed. Um, I think, I think there's so much risk involved in each one of those three things from an agency side where you're like, okay, but it's risky if I do something like this. Like, what if, what if I don't get clients? Like, what if I lose clients? What if they're not happy? Can you talk through a little bit about how it's not as risky as it feels? Well, first of all, I don't think you should be operating from a scarcity mindset in which you think, oh no, if I reject this client, it's the end of my career and I'm not going to get new clients. There's always uh, a new client out there that wants to work with you. Um, you might not be able to realize it because you're too busy working with the wrong client, with the wrong type of clients. Um, yes. So it takes it takes courage and you can cultivate this courage. It's not like you're always going to be scared. Firing a client is very difficult. Firing a client... It's one of the scariest things you can do as a, as an agency um, owner or as a consultant or whatever. But mm-hmm. you have to train yourself to do it because, all the, I mean, unless you do it, you're going to keep having those nasty clients that are going to keep uh, giving you headaches and you're going to lose a lot of sleep over their those projects. So, you know, wh- what's worse? Like, what's the worst uh, um, scenario that that can happen, uh, or which one are you willing to put up with? It's like choose your uh, uh, choose your f words uh, wisely uh, to to quote the book. Um, so yeah, choose your battles. Like, do you prefer? Like, are you okay to uh, waking up at three in the morning stressed about this client that's uh, you know a, a pain in the neck? Um, are you okay with that, or do you prefer to just you know, face the client and say, look, this is not really working out. I'm going to have to walk away. I'm going to have to stop this project. 
I'll refund your money and thank you, but we're not really the right, the, the right agency for you. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's better than continuing to work uh, for that type of clients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and two, you know, along the lines of, of scope creep, I, I think communication is the largest area where many agencies have a ton of scope creep. So there's a couple things that you can do to solve that problem. Um, first things first, you should be tracking your time. And if you and your employees are not tracking their time, start having them track their time immediately so that six months from now, you actually have some data to work off of. And what you want them to track is, okay, if you're sending an email or if you're getting on the phone, whether it's scheduled or unscheduled, you need to track that time. You need to put it as unbillable for the client. And that way we can track it and we can look and see how much time are we spending talking with these people and assess how much time should you be talking with people on these kinds of projects, these kinds of retainers, how much time do you think it should take? Then once you get your data, compare it and figure out what needs to change to get it back in line. Do you need to increase your pricing and basically build in a communication buffer to where you know that they're not going to understand? I wouldn't put it as a line item, but just build it in so that internally you know that it's covered and you can provide that valuable communication that they need because um, it's super important. You need it. But just just plan for it. So you can do a buffer. You can talk with them about, okay, instead of sending four emails a day, how about you send us one email a week with all of the things that, that you thought of? Or can we turn all of these emails into a 30-minute phone call every other week? We can just sit down together. We can talk through all of it. We can keep things moving and get it done. And then both of us don't have to think about it anymore type of a thing. So there are solutions to that problem. And that's a huge way to decrease scope creep on all of your projects and retainers. Yeah, I, I like what you said about um, seeing where your time's going. Um I'm not a fan of time tracking when you're billing by the hour be and 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 the reason for that escapes the the scope of this conversation um but I do think time tracking can be a powerful tool when you want to understand what's happening with your day um there are some tools out there like toggle and many others where it's automatic and they'll just show you on which apps you're spending your time on so obviously if you're spending a lot of time on Slack, that might not be the the best way to spend your, your time, right? Yeah. Or if you're spending a lot of time on Zoom, which you would know anyway, because your calendar will be filled with, with appointments. Yeah. But do that for like a couple of weeks to have enough data, and then you're going to be able to determine, okay, my time is being wasted, or my time could be used uh, more productively. Um, for those type of situations, I do uh, recommend time tracking. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, it's uh, that what you said is like getting all of those sort of like mini requests and and batch them together and then go through them on a phone call or go through them on a weekly uh, review or go through them on a on a thirty minute call or or whatever. That is very important. And also is because here's the thing: when when you let your client change whatever they want and come up with new things uh, on the spot, they're going to get very creative. They're going to feel like it's brainstorming time. So they're going to change whatever they want, whatever they're not feeling. And the reason that doesn't 
help you is because at the beginning of a project, you should have very clear guidelines of what the goal for the project is. Mm-hmm. And I assure you, changing their minds every every few minutes during a call is not the way to hit those goals. So yeah. a lot of times what, happen, uh, what happens is, you know, you, you create this, I don't know, you're a landing page and a landing page, the main color is blue and the client is going to be, is going to come to the, to the call. And since they feel they can change whatever they want, whenever they want, as much as they can, as or as much as they want, they're going to be like, you know what? Yesterday I saw this beautiful car park outside and, and it was red and it was the most beautiful red color I've ever seen. I want my website to be red. And then that means, and it happens. Or you know what? Like, you know, my daughter uh, had her her birthday yesterday and then she said her favorite color is magenta. So now we have to change um, every single color on the website. That will happen. And if you don't have a protocol in place or if you don't know how to deal with those situations, you're going to have to spend all of those unbillable hours or Mm. all of that extra time fixing it. That's, That's really the problem. But if instead you refer back to the strategy and say, look, last month when we started working on this, the goal was to do this. According to our research, blue is the color that stands out from your competitors and you know, it's it's what's gonna get, get us closer to the goal. Do you mm-hmm. wanna change the strategy? Like, I'm happy to change it, but that means we have to review our strategy because we've been operating under the wrong um, paradigm. Yeah, um, start from square zero. Back and to they're the board. we have to start over. I don't want to do that. And it just, it puts them in a, in a check type of a thing of where they're checking their idea and reevaluating what it actually means for the people that they're working with, uh, which includes you and all of their team members too. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. I, I love talking about scope creep because it's such a fun uh, topic. Um, I know that you're also uh, a big fan of mentorship programs. I don't know if masterminds as well, but sort of like finding mentors, becoming a mentor, share what you know, and learn from people who have done the same things that you want to accomplish. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This kind of goes a little bit back to the, the relational marketing conversation a tad. And it goes back to, yes, you only have so much time in the day, but people are the most valuable thing on this planet. And so because they're the most valuable thing on this planet, investing the time to pour into people and to be poured into by people is super critical. Um, they've done studies as of late that a lot of the generational uh, communication that used to be present isn't there anymore because we have search engines. And so instead of asking your mom or your grandma about something, you type it into a search engine. This is just new human behavior that we're having to operate with and understand. But because of that, facilitating mentorship is really, really, really hard. And so you have to be intentional. You have to reach out to people and ask to be mentored. You have to have the self-awareness to know, okay, these are the areas that I want to grow in. These are the things that I know How can I find people to grow me? How can I pour into people that are looking to grow as well? Be intentional to reach out to people as well and ask them questions, ask them for their advice. And they're going to be honored 99% of the time that you want to be mentored by them because 
to them, that communicates that they have valuable information in their brain, that they've lived through life. And, you know, the hard knocks of life that they've gone through is going to be valuable to you. And they want to communicate that. Everyone loves sharing their story. And that's something that you can enable and foster in a mentor relationship. And then that's something that you can do as you're passing information along to other people as well. So it is very hard. It takes time, but the value of it is extreme because once you set up those dynamics, you are expanding your your networking circle and your circle of influence much, much wider than if you did not do something like that. And in a much more fulfilling way, I will add, it's a lot more fulfilling to have personal relationships with people than to just have LinkedIn connections like, oh yeah, I've got 3000 LinkedIn connections. Would you ever go get coffee with them? Or would you go get coffee with Joe who you've, you know, you worked with Joe for 10 years and you're not directly working with each other anymore, but you know that you have valuable information to gain from him and wisdom. There's just a difference there. And it's so much more rich when you can set up those relationships. Yeah. And chances are those people that are going to be mentoring you already made a lot of mistakes in their career that you can avoid just by talking to them and learning from them. Um, Absolutely. It's like a shortcut. Yeah. And I would also add um, in our industry, because it is, it's so fast paced and everything just moves along so fast and there's new technologies, new tools, like new ways of doing things. And you have to be on your toes all the time. A lot of people are wary of talking to the older generations who maybe you know, ran a print shop back in the day, or, you know, was someone who worked, worked for a a phone. um, What are they called? See, I'm even blanking on it because I'm so young. Um, A phone book, a phone book company. These people were in the beginnings of advertising. And that paved the way for the way things are done on the internet, too. They've run companies, they've worked on teams, they understand humans. There's so much value there. So don't discredit the older generations in marketing and advertising just because the technology is different because they have a lot of value to give to you as well, even though things are totally different. Yeah, you just reminded me uh, of a conversation I had with uh, Laura Khalil recently where she was saying um, before the internet, people used to network and talk to each other and that's how relationships are formed. And yeah. that's the best type of marketing that you can ask for. Like um, word of mouth is the most powerful marketing that you can have and can be bought. There's no way you can buy uh, word of mouth. You just have to provide yeah. a good experience and you have to be very um, mindful of the relationships that you form with people. Uh, it's, it's exactly that. Another thing I wanted to mention that you made me think of is when you're also sharing what you know, you're perfecting your knowledge on a specific area. There's this phenomenon that happens when you're speaking and when you're writing, you are forcing your brain to make sense. Because when you're just walking around thinking about, you know, ethereal thoughts, you think you are getting to certain like insight or something, but mm-hmm. your your brain is just kind of trying to find shortcuts to give you a, a solution as quickly as possible because that's how we survive. But mm-hmm. when you intentionally go and try to explain a complex idea to someone else, you have to put it into words so that the other person can understand it. And that's very hard. And that is what's going to articulate your thoughts into very 
concrete ideas that you can share with other people. And that's when they become very powerful. And that's when you really start feeling that you know something. Yes. I'm glad you added that because that is so relevant and such a critical part of teaching other people and sharing your knowledge, because they're also going to ask you questions that are going to stump you. And then you're going to have to think, and you're going to have to become even more of an expert in your field as well, because of that question that they asked you that you never thought to answer before them. Yeah. So those questions, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Yeah. Give it your best shot, maybe. Like sort of like this is how I would go about it, but I yeah. actually don't know. And um and that's just gonna help you to sort of like, okay, now there's this thing I actually thought I knew, but I have no idea. I'm gonna go and try to learn more about it to see if I can expand my uh, my knowledge on a specific topic, especially if it's your area of expertise. Teaching what you know uh, of your expertise to some other uh, to some uh, to other people is going to help you find the gaps in your understanding of a topic. You cannot find those gaps if you're not teaching them to someone else, if you're not explaining them. So either Absolutely. by writing or by talking to someone else. Absolutely. All right. So I think we've covered a lot of things. Um, and it's been a very, very uh, fruitful conversation. I'm very happy that we we touched on all of these topics that are very um, uh, I'm very interested in. Is there anything else that you want to add? Any other thoughts of, of for all of the ideas that we've discussed? Sure. I mean, there's always more to add, but I think to sum it up, there the the dynamicity of our our field, our industry, whether you're doing UX design, whether you're doing graphic design, whether you're doing content strategy and SEO, there's always more to learn. There's always more to do. And so setting realistic expectations with yourself so that you can set realistic expectations with your teammates so that you and they can set realistic expectations with your clients is going to be critical in addressing pretty much everything that we just talked about today. So I want to end with that and just, just leave you with that final thought. Thank you very much. Um, where can people go uh, to connect with you and, and learn more about your work? Absolutely. So I am not huge on social media. I pretty much only engage on LinkedIn. So people can find me on LinkedIn under Danielle Photo, and they can connect with me there, reach out, ask me questions, um, send over information that you've been working on. I love to hear about what projects people are doing and any different ways that you would approach anything that we talked about, like scope creep and communicating with clients about setting expectations and SEO, whether that be technical or non-technical, all of that. Uh, I eat and breathe it. So send your thoughts my way. I would love to read it. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your time with us today, Danielle. Um, wishing you a great weekend. Today's Friday, folks. So have yeah. a great weekend. Thanks again for your time. And um, I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you, Ed. Have a great weekend as well. You too. Bye-bye.